my, my favourite kite would be the pork jowl. It's so rich, it's got so much flavour in it, and we would just cook the hell out of the fat side of it so that the fat really caramelised. And it was it was absolutely stunning. Um, now that I'm talking about it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and do it again. <laughs> this is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. While working with Australian chef Shane Osborne in London, Paul Cooper was challenged to break down a whole pig and create a dish for the menu. The experience led to a new approach to his cooking, where whole beast butchery is at the heart of everything that he does. Paul, it seems like you've always had this nose-to-tail sort of ethos and approach to your cookery. Where, where did that all start? Uh, it originally started many years ago when I was um, working closely with a uh, rare breed producer of pork. Um, his name was uh, Anthony Cumnick from memory. Uh, he used to produce the most amazing Wessex saddlebacks. Uh, and he had a lot of trouble getting rid of some of the secondary cuts, the, the less desirable cuts like the shoulders and, and you know, the heads and the likes. So I always used to talk to him and, and find out a way that I could help his business grow by u- utilising the things that he he was having trouble moving. So he would he would p- pass me off these these beautiful pork shoulders. Um, we'd, we'd cook them and, and find ways to serve them that were as good as, if not better, than some of the other primary cuts of pork, like the bellies and the uh, the loins. Um, and from there, it kind of grew, and I got I got more interested in uh, utilising the the things that people don't normally use. So kind of kind of developed from there. Well, tell us about um, some of the discoveries you had as you started to utilise the, the whole beast. Was it, was it surprising how far you could go with it? It was. I mean, even, even as far as, I mean, there's some stuff there that people obviously know, like stuffed trotters and um, pork tongue and um, pork cheek, I should say. Um, but then we started delving into tails and, and then the gelatinous of the, the amount of gelatin in the tail was amazing. It was just like so unctuous as you eat it. Um, so we found new ways to, to try and make that a bit more appealing rather than having all the, the little bones and picking off the bones. We'd pick it off the bone and turn it into a, a croquette of sorts or you know, try and find ways that would make it super easy for people to eat um, but still enjoy that really um, fascinating unctuousness that you can get from, from things like pork tail. Um, and and kept kept developing from there. So there's there's plenty of other little stories that we can tell about it, but I probably bore your listeners. <laughs> well, we can dive into those stories because we want to hear them. Your career has um, been fascinating to watch. You've gone abroad to Sydney, regional Victoria, in all different sorts of um, offerings. Um, but take us back to when you were young. What what was food like for you and your family when you were a kid? Uh, as a child, um, I grew up in, in quite a quite a poor household. So, so my um, my stepmom, even when I was three years old, would would cook me things like bubble and squeak and um, you know big bowls of the fat chips she used to call them with uh, fried eggs on top. Some of that English style food, uh, and it was quite quite an interesting time in my life because I was eating really poor food, um, but I was really enjoying it at the same time. So there was a lot of um, I suppose, appreciation that grew from that, that you can use some of the cheaper products and, and turn it into something really magical. 
When did the interest in food develop for you in so far as, you know, the idea of a career as a chef emerging? Well, I, I took on an apprenticeship first thing out of school. So I originally started as a, uh, a waiter at a restaurant called The Vines in Red Hill. Um, I spent about one week as a waiter and the chefs turned around to me and said, hey, I like the way you work. You know, would you be interested in coming and working in the kitchen? Uh, so I, I absolutely jumped at it and said, yeah, let's do it. Um, did a week's trial. And I, I remember that week's trial distinctly because um, several things happened in it. You know, I had a, tickets to a Pearl Jam concert of all things booked on the Saturday. And I, and I, I said to him, you know, I've got, I've got this concert to go to. And he's looked at me and said, that's a Saturday night. You're not going. I just sort of turned around to him and said, yeah, no worries. I won't go. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll forego the tickets. Um, and, and that's, that's how it started. And it's, you know, my, my training was, was very good. I was put straight into a section. I didn't have to go through the process of being the, the, the kick around apprentice. So I was, you know, straight into running a section and, and it was very fortunate in that regard to be exposed to all the, um, the things that, in those big hotel chains, you might not be exposed to. So I was, I was very fortunate in that regard. The wages, I won't tell you about the wages, they were disgusting, but um, <laughs> obviously obviously it gets better as you get along and, and now award rates are much better. So, you know, everyone gets looked after now. But, yeah, back then we were treated a bit, uh, a bit differently. You spent time in the Mornington Peninsula at the Vines of uh, Red Hill. Um, what, what, what did you take from, from that time early on in your career? I guess I guess the the fact that you can be creative. I I went. I had two head chefs at that uh, venue. Um, one of them was a, a German, old school German chef who you know was a bit of a bit of a hard nut. Um, would really, really make sure you did things his way, and there was no alterations to that. Um, and, th- and that was an interesting way to look at things. And I suppose I learned a bit of discipline from that. And then I had a bit more of a a free flowing chef come in after that. And he was more of Italian focused. Um, you know, he's he worked at some great restaurants, uh, some very famous restaurants at the time. And he he was a little bit more fluent. You know, he'd let me open up a little bit and express myself to a degree. Um, everything had to be done his way, but in terms of the presentation and the conversations we had, it was um, a, a lot a lot more of a different uh, take on the previous chef. Um, and th- and that's probably a bit more how I operate now is that, you know, get people involved and keep people motivated. I think that's a, a smart way to work in restaurants nowadays. There's a really strong foundation of Italian cooking in your early days. Uh, you, you spent time at Becco and Matteo's. Um, what sort of impact did that have on, on your cooking? Do you have any stories from those kitchens? Uh, stories from they're, – they're, they're very interesting. I remember my first weeks at Becco, I – I was, um, you know, learning the ropes, and, and but the chefs there were, you know, like really pushing me and driving me to try and get faster. And he's like, "Come on, mate, summer's just around the corner. You got to get faster. You got to get faster." I'm like, okay, okay, I'm trying, I'm trying. Um, and we had a little a little pasta room which was separate to to the rest of it. And my job was to make pastas in the mornings and had to get X amount done by X amount of in, in by lunchtime so that everything was ready for lunch service. And it was it was a good good experience to learn that that extra drive that you need um, to, to try and make sure you're organised and ready for service. And then it gets to the point where you you want to be so organised, you end up going in an hour earlier just so you can be on top of it. Um, and Mateo's, that was a, a very different experience again. That was um, 
an extremely busy kitchen, but it was a well-drilled kitchen. So we would start at, at midday, um, sometimes 11 o'clock. So it was a really late start. And, and chefs chefs love that because you can you know go out and have a few drinks at night and then not uh, not be hungover the next day. But it was it was um, really busy on weekends. We do two hundred covers and, and we were producing food at um, at a very high standard. But it also showed me ways to to produce that food and maintain quality whilst you're pumping out large numbers. And it all, it all comes down to preparation and and making sure you're organised. You spent some time in the in the UK with the chef uh, Shane Osborne, who's um, come to fame a lot in the last sort of five years across the globe. Uh, what was it like compared to working in the restaurants in Melbourne, being in Michelin-starred restaurants in the UK? Oh, it's it's a massive difference. Um, it's big steps. So we, I used to I used to look at my life pre- prior to going to London and post going to London. So the way I sort of look at it, the food I did before London was. Um, and it could be a, a slightly bad way to sell it, but my, I, I feel the food I did was a little bit immature, um, whereas after you spend that time working in those environments, you, you mature a lot as a chef and as a person. Um, and, and we did a good stint there. I was there for two and a half years, um, started at the bottom as a, as a commie chef and worked up to be the sous chef there. Um, you learn a lot and just watching some of the things and the way Shane behaves in the kitchen. He's probably the biggest inspiration I've got in terms of people that I've worked with in the past. Um, so I'll always look back on that time very fondly, even though I was starting at 7 in the morning and finishing at 1 a.m. Um, it's still that defining part of my career. Do you have any stories of that time with Shane that sort of typify that influence that he's had on you? Yeah, one of the, one of the most... Um, one of my favourite parts of my career uh, was when Shane got in this whole suckling pig. Um, it was a you know beautiful pig. We got it, and he said to me, "You can do what you want with that." And and for him to allow me to do that, I was I was amazed. Um, and then to top that off, the dish I ended up producing out of this is one of the dishes that were, was reviewed by the Michelin Guide. So I distinctly remember reading it in the review that they ate this pork dish that I'd created um, with Shane, and we still got two Michelin stars. I was, I was uh, pretty. It was a pretty proud moment, I suppose you'd say, at that point in my life. Can you tell us a bit about that dish? Uh, well, essentially, it was a, an assiette of uh, suckling pig. So we had four different styles of um, suckling pig on the plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, from memory, we had a little cutlet. We had a little bit of the pork belly. Um, I think we turned the, the head and the tails into a little croquette uh, and we did a little boudin out of the out of the legs. Uh, and that was served with uh, mashed potato, which is the dry rubichon style, you know, 50% butter, 50% potato, uh, pickled gerolles and um, beetroot puree. Wow. It was a uh, – yeah, I was, I was pretty proud of that dish and, and even, even now, you know, when I produce – pork dishes i still think about that dish and and, you know how we can change it up and make it more uh approachable um and more manageable because we're working ridiculous hours and we don't want staff to be doing those hours anymore so we try and find ways to recreate dishes that you've done that you're very proud of but in a more manageable way 
you mentioned that you see your career as time before you went to London and time after you'd experienced uh, the restaurants there and working there. Um, what was it like, the dining landscape, when you came back to um, Melbourne? How, how did it feel uh, immersing yourself back into that industry? Yeah, it was, a, it was a tough time when I first got back and, and that's not all because of the dining industry or the, the way people were, were eating food. Um, but my first job back was at the Botanical Hotel and this is when straight after Paul Wilson had left um, and I, I took over from Stuart McVeigh um, and then that got sold very shortly after and I, and I went through the whole this whole receivership period and the owners who went in had a different vision, um, so I got a bit disillusioned um, and found myself at another another iconic hotel in in Melbourne, um, at O'Connell's over in South Melbourne, and even in that venue, you know, we were going great guns. I was really happy with that. We were producing some amazing food, but then um, that one sold as well, uh, and then new owners come in with a with a different vision and a different take, um, which again left me very disillusioned about um, you know what, what was happening. Uh, and at the time, I was in conversation with a, a chap by the name of Eros Gordon, and he mentioned to me that there was a opportunity to open up a restaurant in Sydney with him. So we, my my wife and I, uh, at the time we had a three month old baby, we we jumped at the opportunity, um, jumped in our little mini hatchback that we had at the time, and drove to Sydney, found a uh, found a place in Randwick, a little two bedroom apartment, and and got stuck into opening up. Bishop Sessa. Was Sydney a little bit different to what you were used to in regards to industry and trying to set up a restaurant and, and make a name for yourself? Yeah, the biggest difference is obviously trying to find all those those suppliers, build new relationships. Um, Sydney, it's working in the industry itself, is it's not a big lifestyle change for me. I mean, you go to work, you produce your food, you go home. There wasn't a lot more to it than that. So in terms of life outside of the kitchen, it was it was a very similar sort of scenario for me, but it was just about adjusting to the whole uh, new finding new suppliers, building new relationships, um, trying to trying to build up a good core team in the kitchen, and that probably took us a good um, good twelve months before we really felt settled there. You were doing some amazing things there over a five or six period: uh, whole beast butchery, growing herbs, foraging, all sorts of things and you really found your voice on the plate. T- tell us about the Bishop Sessa experience for you and, and what you loved about it. Uh, working with Errors was a, an amazing experience. He's uh, quite a quite a charismatic man, but he's very smart in the way he does operations and the way he controls the team and the staff around him. So I took a lot from that in, in terms of my leadership style and tried to um, recreate some of that, that re re adjust the way I manage kitchens and the way I did things to try and have a little bit of that more calming nature about the way I did it. Um, and that, that probably came across on the plate too. And, and the whole sustainability thing was really building inside of me after after the dealings with Anthony Kumnick and utilising the lesser-known cuts. So we started getting in whole whole wagyu, whole lambs, whole pork, um, and it was – our Kurum was a was a basically looking like a, a bit of a butcher shop or a, a bit of an abattoir at some points, but um, it was an amazing experience. And and the way people respond when you, the way other staff respond as well when you are doing those sorts, sorts of things, they just get fascinated and they really, really want to get involved in 
in what you're doing, which which obviously becomes a great environment for people to learn and people to uh, to grow as themselves. So we built a lot of good relationships with through staff with that. Um, there's a lot of people there now that I still talk to that we're good friends um, from from doing that experience. Um, and I, I've looked back, and there's a lot of chefs that I've trained in the years through that that have gone on to to be head chefs and and really make a name for themselves. My recollections of eating at Bishop Sessa um, actually hug back to what you were talking about with uh, your time with uh, Shane Osborne and that assiette of pork. Or you always explore different cuts and different techniques on the plate. Um, can you take us through a pork dish um, that you had during that time that was really successful where you, you sort of explored all of the different cuts? Yeah, well, as as we ran the menu there, we changed the main ingredients. So we, we would not quite list the cut of pork that we were going to use. We would just say this is Berkshire pork from, um, from the Blue Mountains or, or where it may have come from given a bit of provenance, but we wouldn't list the entirety or the, the particular cut that it was. And then we'd work through the animal on a weekly basis to um, utilise the entirety of the beast. So, for example, on a Wednesday night, it might be pork shoulder. On a Thursday night, it might have been pork belly with with a, a bit of the loin. On a, Thursday, a Friday night, it would have been the pork rump. Um, and then once you've gone through the, the whole animal, we would then go back to the start and get a new animal in. So it was, it was an interesting time, and we learned a lot of different techniques. Um, we used sous vide cooking um, quite a fair bit. Uh, we did a lot of low temperature overnight cooking, um, poaching in in flavoured stocks. Um, uh, an example there, we made a, a porcini stock to poach pork loin in. Um, we used to hold the porcini stock at uh, a set temperature, drop your your pork cutlet in, and it poaches gently for. 25, 30 minutes um, in order to get a, um, the, the result that we wanted. And um, from my from my memories, I may be wrong, there might be people out there that tell me otherwise, but I think we did a, a very successful job at, at, at doing that. What sort of impact did that have on the way you've cooked since that period of uh, time in your life? Well, it's had a, a strong influence and I've continued to do that. Um, now I've gone through several different environments that in my in my cooking career you know we've worked in um, right now in the restaurants that we do we've got a, an Italian restaurant and we've got a French restaurant so um, we try and keep the techniques similar but giving a bit more um, homage to where that provenance is so so for example the French we might do pork petit sal and and that's basically slow cooking it encased in the salt meringue uh, in, and it's still still keeping it at that low, low temperature, but it just helps maintain all the moisture in the pork. Um, it basically gen- gently steams itself in in that in that meringue case. Um, whereas whereas Italian will do it slightly different. We'll braise our pork down. It might be um, uh, cooked in milk, uh, which the the correct description escapes me at the moment. I am drawing a mental blank. My apologies. Um, <laughs> Uh, con latte, perhaps, um, which it's a similar process, but the, you've got the lactose in the milk. We'll keep it at that low temperature, um, but you're getting a different result because you've got all the, the proteins and the lactose in the milk affecting the pork. So it's it's a slightly different result to, to doing it the French way, but we're utilising the same mythology behind all that. 
over uh, the last um, three or four years, you've made a real success outside of Melbourne in regional sort of areas. It started in the Yarra Valley and um, you've, you've branched out since then. T- tell us about what the last few years have been like, this creation and growth of your, your own group. It's been uh, a, a very challenging time, shall we say, because I'm, I'm quite a hands-on operator and, and having having two, three outlets, it it's really can be challenging if you if you don't have people that you can trust. Fortunately, now we've grown to a point where I've got um, you know three separate head chefs uh, plus a head chef who looks after solely uh, our external catering. So, and all of those I can trust to produce the food that you know is it is it the standard that we want it to be um but it's been been quite a stressful time when you you try and grow things both financially emotionally um and also with the family it's been uh um you know i'm not there as much as i'd like to be on some weeks but it's at the end of the day it'll all be worth it because there'll be there'll be something there for my kids to to have and at least there'll be that financial security for them as they as they get older too, and then that's what it comes down to. At the end of the day, is we all need to try and feel um, that we've accomplished and we've accomplished something good, and we're in a in a good position, and we're leaving our families in a good position. Tell us a little bit about the offerings that you have at the different establishments, and and I know that you've got some things uh, around the corner as well. Yeah, that's right. We're we're always looking to grow and do something interesting that that people will find a bit of fun um, and have a good time looking after. So uh, I'll run through them very quickly. We've got the Unchette Winery, which is basically a French bistro that has a, a really classy wine list and, and, a, and a great cocktail list there. Um, it's very much uh, building into an institution where people come knowing that they're going to get great food. I've always looked at Francois as a bit of a... Uh, a comparison point, you know, something that people can come and know what they're going to know what to expect, and know that they're getting great food and, and great service and great wine. Um, then we've got Ferguson Winery, which we took over. Which this was a very poor timing on my behalf, but we took over in July last year. Um, and as you may or may not be aware, Victoria spent about four months after that in lockdown. <laughs> um, so we've reopened that in November. And that's um, much more of an Italian focus, and we we grow our own grapes there, um, so we produce the own wines. So it's a it's a whole new venture for me. It's a something that I haven't really tapped into in the past, and something that I'm learning a lot more about is is that wine sales and um, how to how to try and market your your wines as opposed to just a restaurant. Um, but we we've got an Italian focus there. The food's all designed to match the wines that we've got. Uh, and then we're developing an Italian wine list there, which will have some of the, the more iconic Italian wines on there, uh, plus some of the boutique wineries of the Yarra Valley, some of the more well-known ones. So we've got One Turner Estate, uh, Mount Mary, um, Nirenberg, those those types of wines that, that people will instantly recognise, um, or they can choose, obviously, the Ferguson Estate wines. Um, and then our other, our other avenue is... Uh, Edge Hospitality, which is all about external catering. So we do weddings in – we've done weddings in farms. We've set up in a barn before and, and served a wedding. Um, we've done weddings from little marquees and uh, it's a it's a really unique and, and it's quite a fun um, way to do 
to do different weddings. So we'll just travel wherever we need to go, almost do anything. Um, then we, that Edge Hospitality also looks after a golf club called Yarin Meadows, which is uh, not too far from Bianche. And then we've got the Box Hill Pavilion, which is an affiliate of the um, Hawthorne Football Club, the Box Hill Hawks. They, they operate out of there. So we're also in development. We have what's called the Bedford Booze Bus, which uh, is going to pretty much be aimed at the weddings that we do, but also some festivals and the likes. Now, this is a 1947 Bedford Ute that's being converted into a cocktail bar and it's going to have a, a range of craft beers on there as well. So this will be a very fun thing and very unique thing for, for weddings um, and, and a great little extra selling point for people to have something unique. Uh, and then we're working on a barbecue trailer. So this is where we're hoping the festivals will come in. Um, we're calling it the Argy Bargy, which uh, will serve Argentinian-style street barbecue food. The, with the edge hospitality and the the various sort of types of catering that you do you're doing, how different is preparing for that compared to the restaurants that you run? It's it's quite um quite unique, but not that different. The only the only difference is you've got to be prepared for all sorts of different outcomes. You know, um, we've got a generator to to make sure we've got power sometimes, but. Um, you, you do need to be sure that everything is ready to go. So essentially you want to get to the wedding. You want to be ready. You're not, not doing any prep at the wedding. It's just a heat and serve scenario. Uh, and that's the only way we can ensure consistency across the board. Um, so essentially everything is pre-cooked, ready to go, and then you get it. You get it there, you heat it, and you serve it. Um, whereas in the restaurants, obviously, there's a lot more uh, consistency with the way you cook. You can cook to order. Um, with a, with an external wedding, you've got to be extra prepared. So there's a lot more behind the scenes work that goes into it, which obviously obviously that's a, a all part of fun and and you know learning how to be organised for these things is is also quite rewarding uh, in in a very different way to restaurants. As you mentioned, you really like to be hands-on with everything that you do. With with so many elements to to what you do, how do you maintain the, the standards that you do? Well, that, that comes down to where you trust the, the people that you put into the positions that they are. Um, now, I'm, you know, generally at the three venues throughout the course of a day. Um, you know, I'll, I'll drive from wow. one to, to the other just to see how they're all going. Um, and then whenever the, whichever the busiest venue is is where I'll probably pursue position myself for that evening or that lunch um and then you you you're just making sure that everyone is um everyone else is well organized and well prepared at the top of the show you mentioned the farmer that you connected with um and eventually got whole pigs from and and really explored the the whole pig was was there a cut that surprised you um once you sort of delved into the different uses uh, a cut in particular, look, pork belly is probably the most popular at the moment. Um, so I'm going to not say pork belly. You know what? You know what? My my favourite cut out of the whole pork would be the pork jowl, without without much hesitation there. Actually, um, it's it's so rich. It's got so much flavour in it. Uh, and if you cook it correctly, we used to we used to do a very quick corning on it, and then and then gently poach it overnight before taking the skin off and we would just cook the hell out of the fat side of it so that the fat really caramelized uh, and then 
turned it over and you just had this ultra tender meat with this nice little uh, uh, nice little crispy layer of fat across the top and it was it was absolutely stunning um, now that I'm talking about it I'm gonna I'm mm. gonna go and do it again <laughs> <laughs> you've got so many elements to you know what the offerings that you have is you almost got your foot in just about every potential market what is it that you love about what you do I, I think I tried to diversify uh, early early on in the Bianche when we first opened that. I, I tried to diversify a bit and, and make the business a little bit more bulletproof. Because if you if you have a, we opened the restaurant on a on quite a tight budget, um, and then if you have a quiet week, you know you really feel that quiet week. So I was looking for ways to try and uh, diversify, and hence the catering came up. It started as private dining we would just do small groups you know go and cook for 20 people in a in their in their kitchen um and and you know look after them as a as a private dining it might be a birthday party or something and from there it, it grew and, and just developed almost organically into weddings and and building relationships with some of the other venues around the Yarra valley that don't have dedicated kitchen teams um you know, I guess I was looking for a way to try and make the the business a little bit more bulletproof, and then of course we get stuck with coronavirus, which uh, meant we all 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 closed down. Even though we tried to diversify, we we all the all the avenues had to close down. So you know, we we had a few failed efforts in the middle there. We tried to do a uh, little ketchup company during during the uh, lockdown, and that um, that was almost about to be successful. And but you know, it was a bit of a a lot of hard work and a lot of effort went into it, but now that's essentially gone out the window. Um, we tried to do a ready-made meals thing, which, again, that one never never really took off. But I guess it was just the, the fact that we were trying to do new things that kept people motivated throughout those lockdowns. Um, society's opening up again, and um, you've got all of these amazing different businesses. What are you, what are you looking forward to in 2022? Oh, for me, 2022 is about uh, solidifying the businesses that we have and, and building new relationships and and really making sure that every person that comes into the venues leaves with a big smile on their face, uh, happy, enjoying what they've had and, and making sure that experience is um, consistent right across the venues. Well, Paul, uh, it's an absolute honour to have you on The Crackling today. Congratulations on what you've built and and what's to come too. It sounds amazing. Uh, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you so much for the time and the opportunity, Anthony. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstart. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.